I think it is a fair assessment to say that those saints who have suffered the most, those believers who have endured the most in this life, have often not understood why they were going through what they were going through. But as they committed themselves to the Lord and as they committed their souls to the Lord, they realized that he had put them in the very difficult positions they were in and that he had a purpose for them in those positions, such as you know well is the case with Johnny Erickson Tata. She was 19 when she was on a white water rafting outing with her friends and she fell off of her raft and broke her neck and has been a quadriplegic for many decades. And yet she recounts how the Lord sovereignly used that in her life to minister to others. Johnny Erickson Tata is one of those women that, that uh, sort of uh, leaves you mesmerized because she has so much joy and we have such little joy. And we, have, we, we are fully functioning and she is not. She is a woman who has realized that God had a purpose in her suffering and in the difficult situation in which she found herself and many others have been like her. And as we come to look at the life of Joseph, and as we've already begun to see the suffering that Joseph has endured, and we've begun to see the difficult situations that the Lord has placed him in, we find uh, the last difficult situation Joseph found himself in. And it is uh, that well-known account of Joseph being thrown into prison with the baker and the butler and that story of the dreams and his giving of the interpretation. And yet at the end of this story, Joseph is left in prison. He is forgotten. His request goes unreferenced, unmentioned, and he is left in this place of humiliation and suffering. And as we look at this and as we consider together this morning these verses, beginning in chapter 39, verse 19, down through 40, uh, verse <clears throat> 23, we're going to see two things. We're going to see first that in Joseph's life and in his suffering here in the prison, God is working his will out. God is supernaturally and sovereignly working his will out in Joseph's life. And then secondly, uh, the Lord is teaching Joseph what it means to serve others with the gifts that God has given him in order to make him the leader that God has purposed to make him. And so as we look at this together, you'll notice that we're told no sooner has Joseph been thrown into prison and no sooner has he been falsely accused and he has been placed with the worst of the worst criminals and numbered with the transgressors that he is exalted again. He is in that place of humiliation and suffering, and yet he is entrusted with the care of all the prisoners. Now, uh, I think we have to keep in mind that um, this is a very different Joseph from the Joseph we meet originally in chapter 37. He was 17 years old then. He's 28. It's been 11 years. You say, how do you know that? Well, I did the math. He's 30 in the next chapter and says two more years pass after this. He's 28. And, and he's a different Joseph. He's not the brash, arrogant young man that he was. He is a man of integrity and uprightness. And it shows because at this point we have to conclude that what has happened to Joseph is, is directly in correlation with Potiphar. And remember, Potiphar threw Joseph in prison because his wife falsely accused him. But we have to conclude that Potiphar knew what kind of man Joseph really was and that there's a sense in which he is probably second-guessing whether Joseph really did what his wife said that Joseph did. 
because no sooner has Joseph landed in prison that he is put in charge. Notice verse 22 of chapter 39, the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. Um, The Lord, as we saw last week, is blessing Joseph in this place of suffering. He has put Joseph in the prison. He has put Joseph now over all the prisoners And he is doing something in Joseph's life, though Joseph doesn't know what God is doing. Now, um, it's interesting, John Calvin, as he reflects on this, he says, essentially, the Lord could have delivered Joseph out of prison immediately. He could have kept him from being falsely accused. He could have kept him from being sold into slavery by his brothers. He He could have done all of that. And so, so what is happening here is not first and foremost about Joseph, but about God working out his will in Joseph's life. Calvin says, uh, the Lord chose to lead Joseph around by circuitous paths, the better to prove his patience and to manifest by the mode of his deliverance that he has wonderful methods of working hidden from our view. I think that is so helpful because as we go through those difficult times, And we ask the question, why is this happening in my life? Why am I going through this difficult time? We we are often turned inward, and we are often self-focused and seeking self-fulfillment, and we are seeking self-advancement, and we are not asking the question, what is the Lord doing here? Now, the Lord may not answer that. Joseph, to the best of our knowledge, doesn't know what the Lord is doing. He remains faithful in the midst of the suffering. He, he will grow, as we'll see shortly. He will grow into a leader and be prepared in the place of suffering. But that's what the Lord is doing. He is teaching Joseph about patience. And he is manifesting, as Calvin said, the mode of his deliverance by wonderful working hidden from our view. Calvin says, he does this that we may learn not to measure by our own sense the salvation he has promised us, but that we may suffer ourselves to be turned by his hand until he shall have performed his work. I think that is the absolute hardest thing in the world to learn as a Christian. It's impossible as an unbeliever. So if you're an unbeliever, this will make no sense to you whatsoever. But for Christians, it is the hardest thing in the world to realize that the Lord is placing every circumstance and he is turning us by his hand, wherever he wills, to accomplish his purposes. You know, there's only been one person that ever really got this to the full, and that's the Lord Jesus. Um, In many respects, Joseph is saying by his actions what Jesus says in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. He realizes that the Lord has a purpose in the suffering. And as we see in Joseph's life, God is working his purpose out. Now, one of the things that the Lord is doing that we can take away from this passage is he is vindicating Joseph. And and I think that's wonderful. Joseph never seeks to vindicate himself. He's not seeking uh, to vindicate himself in his, his uprightness. He was perfectly upright. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't deserve to be sold into slavery by his brothers. He didn't deserve to be falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. It wasn't chastening for personal sin. The only reason Joseph suffered was because God 
dealt him a hand that he would be the object of injustice. And yet, the Lord in his kindness decides to vindicate Joseph. There is a sense in raising him up and putting him over all the prisoners in the prison. God is vindicating Joseph. You know, that is one of the most comforting thoughts. That when you are wronged unjustly, um, God oftentimes has a way of vindicating you. I've experienced that in my life several times and in several ways. God has a way of taking people who have done you great injustices. He has a way of taking them out of the way often. He has a way of dealing with them. After all, the Bible says, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. When a man sows, he will reap. God is vindicating Joseph because God has placed Joseph where he is. God has put him in that position And essentially, we can say that God is working out his purpose in teaching Joseph and in teaching us that in all the events of Joseph's life, God was working everything together for good. That's really the heart of the account of Joseph, isn't it? That God is working all things together for good. And he's weaving together this tapestry. And and the beautiful colors of the tapestry and patterns are are born out of the sufferings that he ordained in the life of Joseph. Um, and, and that's one of those things we often don't like to hear. We don't want to hear that the most beautiful patterns in our lives are the hard things that God ordains for us. They're the things that build our character. They're the things that make us to depend on him more. They're the things that make us long more for his deliverance. I imagine... I, and the text doesn't say this, but when Joseph begs the, the butler that he would remember him, he is longing for deliverance. He doesn't want to be in the prison. He wants to experience deliverance. He wants to be free. And yet, in the midst of that, he realizes that he is going to have to be faithful as God works out his plan in his life. And that is one of the most wonderful lessons that we can ever learn, that I have to learn patience in the midst of whatever difficult situation God has dealt me, because God is working it all together for good, for his purposes, for his glory. Because at the end of the day, my life is not mine. And, and you know, the Lord often frustrates our plans because his purposes are so much more glorious. I found that to be true in my life. I don't know if you have in yours. When we look at our plans and they've been frustrated and, and we start to complain, why didn't it turn out like this or this or this? Why couldn't I have gotten this or this or this? We have completely forgotten what is being taught here. That at the end of the day, the Proverbs say, many are the plans of a man's heart, but the Lord's counsel, it will stand. And that is one of the supremely important lessons that we have to learn. Joseph And I often say this to you, Joseph is right where the Lord wants him. And in every situation in which you find yourself, if you're a believer, you are right where the Lord wants you. It doesn't matter how hard, how unjust you've been treated, how difficult the circumstances, you are right where God has you because he is working out his purposes. He is working out his plan. And, you know, I think this is all the more important when we feel as though God has forgotten us. Because by human standards, Joseph looks as though the Lord has forgotten him. He, he looks as though the Lord is not delivering him. You know, false teachers will always tell you that, that if God is for you, things are just going to be great. That is 
antithetical to everything the scripture teaches. In fact, those for whom God is for are often those with the most difficulties, and it actually looks like God is against them. And yet, when we feel as though God has forgotten us, when we feel as though he's abandoned us, we look here, here's Joseph in prison. He knows that God's with him. This is the place where God is carrying out his purposes. That's the first major point that we learn here in this passage. But secondly, and I think that really the the pressing and the driving focus of this passage is that the Lord is preparing Joseph through the suffering, through the humiliation, through the affliction, through the difficult circumstances to become the leader that he wants him to be. Because at the end of the day, everything is moving to Joseph becoming the second most powerful person in the most powerful nation in the world to save the whole world with the rich grain that he devises in his wisdom. And so God is preparing him to be a leader, one of the greatest leaders in human history. And what is so striking about this passage is that Joseph doesn't seek to become the leader that God has purposed him to be. He is content on being where God wants him and to learn the preparations that God wants him to learn and to learn how to be a servant. Because at the end of the day, those who become the greatest leaders in the kingdom of God are those who become the greatest servants in the kingdom of God. You know, that's what's really highlighted. No sooner are we told that, that uh, Joseph is exalted, notice, notice the language that we're told um, about the baker and the butler in verse 3 of chapter 40. The, the, chief, uh, the chief prison ward put... The, the baker and the butler in, in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. Notice this language. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. Now, that may seem like an insignificant little detail. He attended them. But what Moses is telling us and what the Holy Spirit is telling us is that Joseph served them. He was a servant to them, that what Joseph's existence was in prison was that of a servant and and you see him serving the baker and the butler now let me talk briefly about them before we talk more about um, Joseph and his service Um, don't think of the baker and the butler as some little small business owner in Egypt that have a nice little bakery and a little winery These are the king's right-hand men overseeing his food, making sure he's not poisoned. And as you'll know, in those days, um, most conspiracies would come through these men. And most attacks and most uh, insurrections and uprisings and most uh, coups would occur through these men. And no doubt there was something brewing and people had heard uh, rumors that the baker and the butler were involved in this and the king acting with swift justice threw them into prison so that they would be out of the way and that he would be safe. And, and they are put under Joseph's care. Now, um, it would be easy for Joseph to have avoided them, wouldn't it? I mean, they, in all likelihood, were trying to kill the king. Why serve them? Justice. They should, they should be dealt with swiftly. And yet Joseph cares for them. Now, Joseph finds himself in this place of sort of obscurity. He's hidden away. He's not, he doesn't have his freedom. He's not out in public. 
He, he, is, he is stuck in prison. He is out of the way. And uh, I love this quote, Joel Beakey, reflecting on this, says, one of the best things you can do in down times or stuck times is take an interest in other people. So simple. He, he's stuck, and instead of going and moping, he decides he will take an interest in others. And he will care for them, and, and they, they look downcast. He, he takes note of them. He takes note of what's going on in their life. They look troubled. They have these dreams. They, they look disturbed. He had dreams. Isn't that interesting? I, I think that's very interesting. He had two dreams. They have two dreams. When he had his dreams at the beginning, he was like, I had some dreams, guys. Now he's like, what's wrong? He sees that something's wrong, and, and he realizes that they're troubled by these dreams, and he asks them. He, notice, he, he goes to them, and notice, he says to them, um, why are your faces downcast today? Verse 7. I think that is supremely important. He, he doesn't have to care for them at all. Most people would not care for them. Uh, most people would be like, we're in prison. It's awful. And they would just wallow in their self-pity and misery. But he cares for them. And that's remarkable. He cares for them. In a place of being sh- stuck and out of the way and out of sight and, and unjustly treated, he cares for others. What an example. What an example that we would learn when things are crummy in our lives. We would serve others. When things are not going the way we want them to go in our lives, we would think about others. Joseph is an unbelievable example of God's grace because all of that is supernatural. None of that is natural. The Lord is preparing him to be the leader that he's going to be by bringing him in this place of preparation and Joseph becomes kind, he becomes patient, he becomes caring even when he's out of sight and out of mind. Um, Sinclair Ferguson has this really amazing thought as this, this narrative progresses. And remember, Joseph had the dreams, now the baker and the butler have the dreams. Joseph takes an interest, he says, why are you downcast? And, and they both tell him their dreams. First, the, the, the butler tells him his dream, and and. Joseph does something extraordinary. He uses the gifts that God gives him to serve both of these men in a way that he knows they need to be served. Sinclair Ferguson says, the best leadership comes from those preparing to serve, those who recognize that Jesus has given them gifts with which to serve others. In the church, that's, that's so true. You know, uh, I have many ministerial friends, and when we talk about how do we identify leaders in a church, how will we know uh, the men that God will set apart, how will we know whether this individual will, um, will lead in different ways in the church, um, it is never because that person wants a position of leadership. In fact, usually when someone really wants a position of leadership, that is a red flag, because God's leaders often don't want those positions of leadership. Those men that God raises up to be leaders are those who serve others and who pour themselves out in service. And in that way, Joseph is a picture of the Lord Jesus, isn't he? You know, I've, I've 
I've always marveled at the fact that you can read Mark 10.45 repeatedly and never exhaust how rich it is. Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. How did the king of the church exercise leadership for us? He came to serve and to pour his life out in service. And you know what? I have learned over my short life how rare that actually is. You know, we read the story of Joseph, and when you see these things, and, and then you ultimately get to the Lord Jesus and see that, you realize how rare that is, that the better part of men and women in the church are seeking to be served. And when they're not served, they complain, and they grumble, why aren't others serving me? Why aren't others reaching out to me? Why don't people call me? And we know it so well because we are so selfish, and we all do that. And so we come to this passage, and the Lord brings before us this beautiful picture of Joseph and says, listen, the best leadership in the church and the greatest usefulness in the kingdom of God is through serving, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Um, and, and, you know, it's fascinating. Joseph interprets the first dream, and it's good news, isn't it? It's good news for the butler that he's going to be restored and he's going to be filling the king's cup again and it's just going to be three days he's going to be vindicated and he'll be back in service and he'll have his freedom and 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 there's a sense in which you know it's easy for joseph to tell him that um and yet notice joseph doesn't take any of the glory to himself. Notice verse 8. He says, as they tell him, we've had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. Joseph says, do not interpretations belong to God. He doesn't say, I can interpret them for you. He doesn't say, oh, I happen to have the gift of interpretation and I can bless you with it. He doesn't, he doesn't bring any glory to himself. He says, is not God the one who interprets? You see, even in serving, and this is such a crucial, crucial point, when we go to serve others with whatever gifts God has given us, it is, and it must always be with a sight that they are gifts that come from God, and it is God ministering to his people through the gifts that he's given us to serve them with. It must always be to bring him glory. Now, John the Baptist models that so wonderfully, doesn't he? He has all of Israel coming to him. I mean, he has kings fixated on him. John the Baptist, crazy John the Baptist, wearing some camel hair and eating locusts in the wilderness, is the most significant person in all of Israel leading up to Jesus. And yet, he is the one that says, he must increase, I must decrease. He is the one that points to Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He essentially says, whatever I am, whatever I have, it exists to bring glory to the Savior. Joseph, in saying interpretations belong to God, is really raising one of the greatest apologetic arguments in a pagan land. He is giving glory to the God of heaven and earth, the true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and his father Jacob. He is bearing witness to the goodness of God in his service. And, and it's easy for him uh, on one hand, to tell the butler's dream, and yet we see that it takes courage for him to bear witness to, to the fact that interpretations belong to God. And then secondly, we'll see that the service becomes increasingly difficult because Joseph now has to tell the baker 
his dream. Now, unless you're one of those really mean-spirited people, and there are people like this out there that like to tell people the bad things coming their way. Some of the worst people on the face of the earth. They really are. There are people that enjoy telling others the bad things coming their way. Most of us find breaking bad news to people to be something very difficult. Um, It would have been easy for Joseph to have said to the baker, you know, not really sure what your dream means. Sorry, I can't help you. (laughs) Would have been easy for him to do that. He's over him. He doesn't have to tell him the dream. He knows that the baker could get irate, could attack him in prison. There's risk involved. In this sense, many theologians have pointed out that Joseph is in a very real respect, like a minister of the gospel. He has to give the good news, and he has to give the bad news. He has to tell the good news of deliverance, and he has to tell the bad news of condemnation and judgment. And it takes courage. And Joseph has to serve to the full, and he has to use his gift to do both. He has to tell two men that one will live and one will die. One will be delivered and one will perish. Um, I think that's a lesson for us in that We don't serve and use the gifts that God gives us only when it fits us or when it suits us or when we think it's going to bring a good outcome. We serve even when we know people may despise us for serving. And oftentimes, people despise us the most when we're using the gifts that God gives us. Oftentimes, people will be most unthankful when you use your gift to the full in serving them. And we see that, don't we? We see that in the butler forgetting Joseph. Joseph doesn't benefit at all. He doesn't get out of prison. He doesn't get thanked. He doesn't get delivered. Notice how this passage ends. We we see that those interpretations, they come to pass. The the butler is restored. The baker is hung and put to death. And notice Joseph had asked the cupbearer in verse 14, only remember me. When it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. That's all that Joseph asked. Just remember me. Just please don't forget that I did this kindness to you. And notice how the passage ends. He restored the chief cupbearer. He hanged the chief baker. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Um... One of the things that you'll learn if you read a lot of the old writers on on this passage on Genesis is they often go crazy with uh, typology and spiritual readings and trying to see Jesus in every every detail. Some even try to say that that the cupbearer filling the king's cup with wine is a picture of the blood of Jesus in the cup in the supper. No, it's not. It's just a cup. It's just the cupbearer filling a cup. And, and they will go crazy with, with spiritualizing this passage illegitimately. And then most newer writers won't tell you about Jesus at all. And they'll give you all the lessons that we've talked about. And they'll give you the details of the text. 
And, and you're left wondering, how in the world does this story have an ending? What's the ending to this story? And we know the ending to this story, don't we? We come to the end of the book, and Joseph is restored. He is remembered. He is placed in the highest position of power. He is the deliverer of the world. He goes from suffering to glory, from death to resurrection. He is, in that sense, a picture of the Redeemer. He is a precursor of Jesus. He is showing us what it is to be delivered and what God does in deliverance and how God blesses the church through the deliverer. I think, though, there is something that, that we can't gloss over. And, and I think Joseph is both a figure of the Redeemer to come, and he is also a picture of an individual who needs redemption. He is a picture of an individual that needs redemption because he's crying out for deliverance. He's not the redeemer. He is crying out to a fellow man to remember him and deliver him, and that man can't deliver him. Joseph has no mediator. That's the point. Joseph has no mediator in prison. No one mediates for him. And yet we know that when Jesus hung on the cross, there were two criminals with him. And there is that parallel, isn't there? One lives, one dies. It's hard not to go there. It's hard not to say, this is moving to another ending and another, another conclusion in redemptive history. And there's a mediator. And, and one of the thieves, the one who is delivered and, and redeemed, cries out, Lord, remember me. And there's a mediator to remember him. And Jesus says, today, assuredly, you will be with me in paradise, there's a redeemer. Joseph has no mediator. Jesus comes to mediate for his people. And then there's also a sort of a contrast, isn't there? Here is an innocent sufferer, Joseph, and he's crying out for redemption. He's crying out um, to be remembered, and he's not remembered. And Jesus cries out on the cross. He is the innocent sufferer. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten me? Why have you cast me off? Why have you put me out of remembrance and abandoned me? And he is forsaken. And there is silence. And he is not remembered at that moment. He is remembered in the resurrection. He is not remembered at the moment that he hung on the cross. Um, there's a picture in the man who forgets Joseph of how we are forgetful of the Redeemer. What should that man have done, the butler that was restored? The very first thing he should have said is, there is a man in prison named Joseph, and he told me exactly what was going to happen to me. And he is an upright man. He is a holy man, and he should have remembered Joseph. He should have remembered him. And you know, that's a picture, isn't it? And we say, how can we forget the Lord Jesus? How can we forget the one who, who enfleshed himself, that God became man and dwelt among us, that he came into a world that hated him and despised him, a world that rebelled against him, and he said, I will take upon myself the sins of my people. I will take upon myself the sins of the world. I will bleed for their redemption. I will bleed to forgive them. I will shed my blood. I will breathe my last to give them everlasting life. And, and how could we ever forget him? 
And yet every day of our life, we forget him. And every time we sin, we forget him. And we are often just like the lepers who he heals, and the nine go away, and Jesus says, where are they? Are there not any to give thanks to God? I want us to just leave this morning with a couple things in mind. The first, I want us to just reconsider the question, am I, am I recognizing that whatever hand I'm dealt in life, the Lord has dealt it because he's working his purposes out in my life? And that means even when it's very difficult, even when I've been treated unjustly, even when I have been reproached, even when I have been falsely accused, even when everything around me has come just crashing down, am I recognizing that all things work together for good? For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And am I recognizing the fact that in the midst of those afflictions, he's preparing me for something greater. And he's preparing me uh, by teaching me to learn to be a servant to those around me. That's, That's the first big lesson in Genesis 40. And then I think the second lesson is, have I come to see that I need a mediator? Um, There's this beautiful sort of exchange in the Bible where you have the thief on the cross teaching us what it is to cry out to Jesus to remember us. That's, if you're a Christian, you've done that. If you're not a Christian, you need to do that. That's what a believer, a believer cries out, Lord, just remember me. Just put me in remembrance. Remember me in your kingdom. And then there's this beautiful juxtaposition where Jesus gives the bread and the wine and he says, this do in remembrance of me. Isn't that marvelous? We cry out to the Redeemer to remember us. And he puts the bread and the wine in our hands and he says, remember me. And as we remember him, we realize that he's remembering us and that he has done everything to deliver us. And he has served us perfectly in the midst of the worst situation, and he has made all things to work together for good in that way. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let let me pray for us. Father, we pray that you would remove from our hearts dullness so that these things would not be boring or dry, but that we would see eternal glory in the truths about your Son, and that you would stir our hearts and minds up, that you convict us of sin, that you would make us to see our need Again, for you, Lord Jesus, that you would remember us and that you would give us grace to remember you. And we thank you that you did not come to be served, but that you came to serve and to give your life a ransom for us. And we pray that you would make us servants, Lord, that you would teach us to serve and to take the lowest spot and to seek to use the gifts you've given us to bring you glory and to bless others and even to do the hard things that need to be done. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would remember us as a congregation and as individuals, and that as we come to the table this morning, you would help us to fix our eyes on you and to remember all that you have done for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.